know what other buttons you gotta press or uh, magic wands you gotta wave, but I will call you right back. Bye. Welcome everyone. This is WSQF Blink Radio. Blink Radio, keep us getting 94.5. Oh, Manning, here we're back. How are you? Well, wait a second. You're like a ghost. You just show up, man. What's up? Statues of Story, Mark. I mean, I mean, Adam Levinson. Uh, I was thinking of Mark Meadows, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to talk about the transition of the President of the United States. In this case, is being delayed by the pending litigation between Trump and Mr. Biden. But you're going to remind us how this all started under the Kennedy administration, correct? You've got, you got that all right, exactly. So as everybody knows, during this hour, we try to avoid talking about too much present politics. We like to go back into the past. And ordinarily, we talk about the Revolutionary Era. We talk about 1787 and the Constitution. We talk about Hamilton and Washington and Jefferson. Every so often, we'll get closer you know, to modern times. We've talked about the election of 1824 the um, Hayes-Tilden election of 1876, so we, we can sometimes we get closer to modern history. The closest we've gotten so far, though, was the Civil Rights era, which was uh, you know, when, when you had the passing, unfortunately, of, of, of Congressman John Lewis. So the closest we've gotten was 1965. But today, we're going to you know, go back to that time frame, which is the Kennedy administration, 1963, is the passage of what most people have never heard of. I hadn't really paid attention to it much until in the last couple of days it's become another subject that's back in the news. So we're going to be talking about the Presidential Transition, Transition Act. So it's the PTA, the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. And interestingly, it wasn't signed into law until 64 when Johnson was the president, but they still refer to it as the Act of 63, even though, again, it, wasn't, it didn't take effect until 64. And what it deals with is this issue of providing for seamless transitions. So what we're going to do today, in uh, some, some weeks, I am able to talk with you from the website because I've posted something. The last couple weeks, however, I'm still working on various projects, so I haven't been able to post anything some, for prior weeks, which makes it more difficult for people to follow along. But the good news tonight is that we have a post which just went live on Statutes and Stories. And, uh, Manny, do you want to remind everybody how they can find it online? Well, statutesandstories.com. A little bit later, you can uh, tomorrow you'll have the audio, the complete audio recording of today's discussion on WSQFRadio.com under Statues and Stories. And uh, literally, I mean, the posts themselves are only on your site, StatuesandStories.com. Right. So people can listen to us live, which presumably they're doing right now. You can listen to the podcast on the radio station, which is the WSQF radio station, under the, the podcast for the show, the radio show, Statutes and Stories. Or you can go to the website, statutesandstories.com. You can either go into the blog or you can go into the index, and you could follow along with us because I'm going to be – I won't read exactly. You know, I don't want to make this a script tonight because we'll have a conversation, but people can follow along with the discussion because it just went live today, and it, it's an interesting act from 1963. So we're going to talk about how the act has been amended over time. We'll be talking tonight about how presidential transitions, have they, how they've gone, and the good news is – in American history, we've always had peaceful transitions of powers. Uh, power. Sometimes we've got a little hiccup along the way, but uh, unlike other countries in the world, we've always had, at the end of the day, peaceful transitions, starting with Washington to Adams. So we're going to talk about some of the transitions over time. Some have gotten a little hairy, so we'll talk about some of those. But then in 1963, the decision was made 
by the Kennedy administration to have a commission, a bipartisan commission, study what could be done to improve the process, which resulted in this law that we're going to be talking about tonight. We'll talk a little bit about Bush-Gore, if you want, the transition that occurred there. So today the focus is on presidential transitions, the history of the transition, although um, I, I'm sure I'm not going to be able to stop Manny from uh, bleeding into the conversation about the transition that uh, will take place. Okay, here's the first bleeding yeah. I'm going to do, and it's not going to be about today. I don't like that the impetus for creating this act was 1963 under Kennedy, and I don't like his excuse that perhaps he didn't know what was going on at the Bay of Pigs, and that's why he created this law to begin with. I don't think so, because on the White House logs under Eisenhower, it's clear that Eisenhower was informing him of the attempts or desires to assassinate Castro and take back Cuba. So I leave it at that. Okay. Well, just... I'm going to defer to you because I'm not as familiar with the Bay of Pigs, which was 1961. I'm not as familiar with uh, that period during the Kennedy administration when it comes to Cuba. You're the, you're the resident Cuba expert, but the, you're right. Let's go to that time period and let's lay some of the background for the adoption of the law. So long story short, there were probably several things that led to, in fact, I know for a fact, there were several things that led to the impetus for the act in 63. And there was a commission that the Kennedy administration set up and when you look, and I post it on the website so people can actually listen to and read, not listen to, but read the hearing transcripts from Congress, because whenever you do, you know, thoughtful legislation, you don't just introduce a bill. You have hearings, and you have experts, and you go through the ramifications, and you debate it, and you think through different scenarios. And, and even when you spend a lot of time trying to figure it out, you're, you're still not going to get everything. That's just the nature of legislation. So it's been amended several times since. So if you look at the legislative history, which is what lawyers and other history lovers can do, so you can look at the, the, the speeches on the hearing transcripts, um, it is clear that one of the primary motivations had to do with funding. And the concern was, prior to that time, the incoming administration would always have to basically be borrowing from the political party. So if you're Democrats coming in, it's the Democratic Party, which is paying for the transition. If it's Republicans who are coming in, it's the Republican Party that's paying for, for the transition. And really, you're becoming beholden to the, if you want to call them the lobbyists or those that are lending money to the transition. So in 1963, they studied this. In fact, I quote some of it on the website, so let me go find it. And, uh, and that was one of the reasons. And then we can also talk about the Bay of Pigs. So if you go to the website statutesandstories.com, and this is under the background, and it talks about, and there's a letter that was dated May 29th of 1962, and what that letter does is it transmits, it's signed by Kennedy, and I've got a copy of it, it transmits the proposed legislation and recommendations from this bipartisan commission, and Kennedy explained that there were important reasons, quote, to institutionalize the change in party power from one administration to another. And if you go to the website, you'll see I've got a picture of President Kennedy. And then I quote from his letter. He says an incoming president must select and assemble responsible public officials who must prepare themselves for their new responsibilities. Thus, I recommend that the outgoing president be authorized to extend needed facilities and services. And we're going to talk about office space. In fact, I'll ask you, if you want to take a crazy guess, how much office space is ready waiting in the Commerce Department in a, in a building in Washington, D.C., not too far from the mall, where the, the Biden administration, and I think it's not too far from the mall, where the Biden administration, if they're the ones that are they're given the key, can move in with the computers set up and the email addresses set up and the, and the uh, telephone and printer. So all that, it's, uh, uh, so they ask you how many square feet, and it's pretty big. Uh, 
I don't believe it's that big. Maybe 1,500 square feet. Okay, so 20,000 square feet. Is, Damn. So the government services, I'm sorry, the General Services Administration, who's in charge of providing the transition facilities, has the space ready, but the key has not yet been turned over. So we'll talk about that later. So I'm going back now to Kennedy's letter from 1962, where he forwards the proposed legislation. And he recommends that outgoing presidents be authorized to extend needed facilities. And that's what we're talking about today. It's 20,000 square feet of facilities. Now, now, can I interrupt? Was it 1,000 in the beginning and then 20,000 today, or or it was always 20,000? That's a good question. So back then, it it wasn't determined. It wasn't specified. But today, it's 20,000 square feet. That's the amount of square footage that's set aside. Because there's a lot of work, and we'll talk about that. An, an incoming president has to confirm a cabinet, and it's in the neighborhood of, and I, I quoted in the website, and, and I would ask you to guess, but it, it's not fair to ask you. But no. suffice it to say, it's thousands of appointments that the president has to make. And particularly in a time of crisis, when you have you know, uh, military threats, and I can give examples of some of the issues that have come up on prior transitions. But it, it's, it's a lot of work, and you want to be able to, the idea is hit the ground running. So... I'm going back to Kennedy's letter where he's summarizing the thinking behind the law, and he explains that you know that we want extent, to be extended by the outgoing administration facilities and services of the government to the president-elect and his associates. So back then they were using you know gender-specific language, his associates. So I think it's important that we make a nod to the fact that there is now, uh, and I'll avoid the politics, but it's pretty clear that there is a uh, the, the first female vice president if everything is accepted and uh, you know, goes through as, as has been recognized by some. So long story short. Oh, boy, did you tap dance around that one? Tap dance around that because uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the past. You don't want to incite me. All right, go ahead. Right, I, I, don't, I don't want, I'm purposely trying to avoid uh, triggering you, Manny, which, you know, you, you can, can. I will respect your, your space, sir, your whole 20,000 feet. You can have it all. <laughs> so what's my last point there? My, my point is that uh, I'm wearing shoes because there's lots of, um, there's lots of glass on the floor, so uh, just watch. Oh, well, guess what? You should have put on pumps because, you know, vice president-elect, okay? <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to allow anyone who wants to wear pumps into the, uh, the vice president suite. Yep, I can see it happening now. Okay, here we go. All right, so I'm, I'm reading from Kennedy's letter, and he's saying we've got to provide facilities and services of the government to the president-elect and his associates. For this purpose, funds should be appropriated to be spent for specified activities through normal government channels as the draft legislation provides. So you can read Kennedy's letter, and I've got links. So then you've got the report, which summarizes the, the bill, and you can look at the bill. So it was introduced in 63, but wasn't, it was not enacted, as I said, until 1964. And let's see, it was then signed into law, as we mentioned, by Johnson. And I've got a copy of the actual version that was signed by Johnson. And people know Johnson was Kennedy's vice president. And he got sworn in, I believe, on a plane after hearing that the president had been assassinated. And that's the kind of transition you don't want to have. That's a tragic transition as opposed to an elected transition. All right, so what does the PTA, or the Presidential Transition Act, do? So it authorizes, as we said, office space, services, and funding by the, the administration, that get the office that's in charge of this is called the, the department, if you will, is the Government Services Administration, or the General Services Administration, GSA, and there's a transition team which is assembled by the president-elect. In fact, both part or both uh, candidates have their transition teams, depending upon who gets elected. And we've got we've got all kinds of acts. So in 1964, today the amount is 9.9 million. That's the amount that's approved to be turned over uh, to whoever is going to become the incoming president. 
Um, so I'm going to ask again, it's not fair either, but people, when they're sitting at home, I try to imagine what was the amount that was authorized in 1964, which is the first time that the money was spent. So today, it's orders of magnitude more than, back then it was $900,000, today it's $9.8 million. So it's more than 10 times the amount. That tells the inflation. 900000 to $9.8 million. So that was the first time it was, it was paid for. And according to the Act, the GSA administrator is authorized to provide, and I'm just going to tick through some of these, suitable office space, furniture and supplies. Today, of course, that's computer, email, and things like that. Compensation for staff at the GS18 pay grade. Payment for expenses for experts and consultants. Travel expenses, subsistence allowances, communication services, and that's back in the day before cell phones, uh, printing expenses and postal reimbursement. And it's funny because when you read the act, it talks about postal reimbursement, including airmail. Because back then, airmail was a big deal. You had regular postage, and then you had airmail. You know, especially you had to pay, I forgot, maybe uh, 65 cents more or whatever it may have been for you know airmail, special delivery. So that's all specified in the act. And over time, that original $900,000 appropriation has grown to $3 million in 1974. Five million in 1988, and as I said earlier, about ten million dollars today in the year 2020. All right, so here's where a little bit of controversy is going to come in. So uh, on this radio station, you know, we're not afraid of controversy. So 94.5, we just duke it out here on Blink Radio Kiviscane. Right, and the controversy came up for the first time in 2000 in the the Clinton Gore election. I'm sorry, the Clinton Gore in the the Bush Gore election. So if anyone is on the website, you can go to Section 3C of the Act, and it specifies as follows. And remember, the administrator of the GSA, the General Services Administration, is the one that's authorized to handle the transition because that that agency is in charge of federal government buildings and federal facilities, right? So the GSA administrator is authorized, as we said, to provide this office space, furniture, supplies, etc., But when does the act get triggered? So this is what paragraph 3C says, and I'm going to read the definition in paragraph 3C. It provides that the apparent, that's the key word, the apparent successful candidates for the office of president and vice president, respectively, and they're defined, this is, it's it's the term president-elect and vice president-elect are defined in this paragraph 3C. So they're defined as the apparent successful candidates for the office of president and vice president, respectively, as ascertained by the administrator following the general election. So the administrator has to ascertain who is the apparent successful candidate. In the legislative history, and this is what lawyers do, or historians also do when they're studying legislation, according to my analysis, indicates that the bill's primary purpose in 1963 was to minimize, as we said, the burden of transition financing. And under the Act, when it became law in 64, financial burdens of transition expenses were borne by the incoming political party, as we said, of the new president. Yeah, that seemed kind of odd, and I was happy to hear Dante Fassell's name show up in your post. That's exactly right. So we're going to talk about Dante Fassell, who was a very famous Florida congressman who was the sponsor of this bill. And that may also have related, perhaps, many to the Bay of Pigs. So according to the House report, it was important, and I'm quoting now from the House report, it was important that sufficient resources are at hand to properly orient the new national leader. So here are some other reasons, if you look at the legislative history, here, here it is, Congressman Dante Pacella, Florida, the sponsor, and I'm quoting from him, believe that expenses are a legitimate part of the operation of our federal government and should be appropriated for government expenses. So you want the federal government to pay for government expenses. 
And he argued it does not seem proper and necessary to have the president or vice president-elect going around and begging for money to pay for the cost of what ought to be legitimate government expenses. That absolute sense. Right. And also, you know, special interests can get involved if, if you're beholden to somebody to, you know, prepare to ramp up to come into the office. So in passing the act, Congress agreed that the cost of presidential transitions should be borne by the public, not by what Congressman Benjamin Rosenthal of New York called special interests anxiously coming forward to help pay government expenses. Why are special interests anxiously coming forward to pay for expenses and what was happening back then? And the answer is they realize that it gives them influence, right? It puts you in the room where it happens. So Rosenthal worried that leaders would feel you know, entitled to special consideration, or lenders would feel entitled, uh, from the incoming government. And, of course, there are also issues with optics, right? It doesn't, even if you're using and you're acting ethically, if you're, you're beholden to special interests at the time that you're coming into office, uh, you know, even if you're not going to treat people un, you know, unfavorably or, or give favor inappropriately, there, there are issues with regard to perception. So this all makes sense from the standpoint of having the government pay for the transition. Let me also point out, and we can get into some more of the reasons, that, and we didn't talk about this yet, but when the Constitution was originally written, and I talk about this at the top of the post, so this was 1787, and everybody remembers who, who listens to this show, that the first Congress comes into, into place in 1789, in the May 1789 time period after the Constitution is ratified. Right? So what did the original Constitution say? And the answer is, back then, things were a little bit slower. Why? Because transportation was by horse carriage and by you know, ship. We didn't have the steam engine. We didn't have you know, modern transportation, obviously. This is pre-industrial revolution. So back then, the president would be inaugurated on March 4th. So the election is in November, but the president doesn't get sworn in until March. So that's, count the months with me, November, December, January, February. We're talking about, uh, and then March, you know, in the neighborhood of five months for a transition. And that was then changed, and we'll talk about the 1930s, uh, with what happened. There was a bad transition during FDR, when FDR comes in during the Depression, and he did not have a good relationship with Hoover. So that was another reason why they realized that uh, this is something that can be improved. Now, can I interrupt you a, a second? Yeah. F did FDR uh, run against an incumbent Hoover, or was he termed out? Okay. No, the, no he, he beat Hoover. He beat Hoover. That's right. There was no term limits back then. Right. And Hoover, remember, FDR is, is running on the New Deal. He's running on a program of governmental spending in order to create jobs. And we could debate about, you know, federal spending in that way. Uh, deficit spending. And Hoover is all about making sure that uh, you don't have de deficits. In fact, as, as Roosevelt, and that's, this is before they amended, and it was the 20th Amendment that moved the date of inauguration from March 4th to January 20th. So now the transition period or the lame duck, lame duck period is not as long as it used to be, which minimizes certain risks. But it's now more important that presidents be able to, you know, be in, in my opinion, in full control of the government because of things that can go go awry, particularly if there's a, you know, a crisis. And we could debate what constitutes a crisis. So let's talk briefly then about the 1930s. So you know, Hoover is a guy that's uh, you know a strict gold standard guy, if you will, and, and he's uh, trying to get Roosevelt during that transition. Which remember, you're elected in November, but you don't get you don't come in until March. So he's trying to have he's trying to educate Roosevelt. He's, he's bringing him into the White House and trying to lecture him and have his Treasury Secretary explain the importance of not raising taxes so that there's public confidence that there won't be deficits. And you know that goes 100, 180 degrees from what Roosevelt wants to do. So Roosevelt's not going to listen to Hoover. So there's a little bit of a blame game taking place. 
and the, you know the runs on the bank. So this is this is the heart or the, the you know the the worst depths of the depression. Uh, so and also there was a, an incident where Roosevelt was almost assassinated during that period, and that's maybe a subject. It was a, a Miami bricklayer, right? He's driving in an open car, and the guy sitting next to Roosevelt gets shot and, and dies. So there yeah, was, yeah, that, it, it would a complete uh, change in history had it not been that way. Right, and what else is going on in Europe in 1932? Hitler's basically coming to power, right? The war has did, they, did they ever know who was trying to hit uh, Kennedy here? In, I mean, FDR here in Miami? So we'll, we'll do that on another show. So I, I don't. Ah, oh, come on! I'm baiting you, man. We can we can look it up. It shouldn't be too hard to find. But uh, so there was a, a difficult transition for Roosevelt. What did they do? And the good news is that in our democracy, when there's a problem, sometimes it takes a while, but eventually, hopefully, it gets fixed. So the 28th Amendment, as we said, moved the presidential, you know, it also also changed the date for Congress. Because back then, Congress had to wait until March. So here, Congress now comes in in early January, I think it's January 2nd or January 3rd, after double check. And the president gets in and, you know, comes in and, and sworn in, inaugurated on January 20th, as opposed to March 4th, which is how it used to be under the original Constitution before it was amended. All right, so we're back to 1963, and let's talk about the Bay of Pigs. So what was, in, in part, we've described how a lot of the reason for the bill, for the PTA, the Presidential Transition Act, was because there was concerns about, as the government gets more complex, and remember that uh, this is the, the Cold War has started, right? And uh, you know, that was during Truman, when the, the Cold War, when the, the Iron Curtain descends across Western Europe. So, you know, if people know who the presidents were back then, you had Truman, then you had Eisenhower, um, and then after Eisenhower, you have uh, Kennedy come in. So, you know, Kennedy's during the, during, during the uh, I won't call it the depths of the, of the Cold War, but things are pretty serious, and then we're eventually going to have not just the Bay of Pigs, but the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis is around the corner. So what's the point? The point is that, uh, and we could debate about the Bay of Pigs, and this is where I defer to you, but some have criticized that transition because it is likely that the Kennedy administration didn't know everything that was going on and didn't have complete, I won't say access, but wasn't fully up to speed, you know, as was the Eisenhower administration about the, about the proposal, which was to invade Cuba. And you know, by, by all means, if you want to talk a little bit about the Bay of Pigs, many, because I know that's an area where... I'm holding my tongue. I can just, you know, be quiet. I'm going to obey your rules. Okay. Well, it counts because it's history. It's not present day. Well, I, the only thing I can say is what I said earlier. Um, I've seen the transcripts. It's well-publicized transcripts of everybody went in and out of the Dwight Eisenhower administration's White House during the transition period. And Kennedy was already elected. And uh, you can just see in the transcript that he was informed by everybody what they were up to. And uh, apparently the night of the invasion of the Bay of Pigs, he was dancing at a naval ball at the Kennedy Center. <clears throat> I don't know if the Kennedy Center was named Kennedy by then. Of course, it probably was not. Uh, but his mind was not on the ball whatsoever. And since it was told to him that it was a Nixon plan as Eisenhower's vice president, lesser so. He just wasn't interested. Quite frankly, he was hoping that it, the whole thing would just go away since it wasn't really a sophisticated invasion to begin with. And apparently he shot down that idea of, of a noisy invasion. And apparently that's what undermined the whole invasion because the planes were never sent. That's all I got to say. So we'll have to do that on another show. This is what I wrote on the website, that the Kennedy administration certainly understood in 1963 
the national security implications of a transition, in particular the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, and you and I will agree it was a failed invasion in April of 61, may have been due in part, so I'm you know, reserving and being uh, careful. You're being an attorney. May, that's right, may have been in part due to information lost in translation between the outgoing Eisenhower and incoming Kennedy administration. So that's the way I describe it. Certain information may have been lost in translation, but we'll do another show. Uh, But it gets to the point that these are important decisions, and you want the team to come in fully prepared to take the reins of government and and to address whatever needs to be done. So that's April of 61 was the Bay of Pigs, right? When did that transition happen? You know, that was uh, in in the January time frame. So it's only a couple months after Kennedy comes in is when you have the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. And I'm surprised that it was, I'm surprised it wasn't happening right during the transition so that the Eisenhower people could execute the plan. Instead, they waited for him to actually come to office. And that sucked because it's a new commander in chief with a lot of authority, but he changed the plans. He went from from, uh, sandy beaches to muddy waters of the Bay of Pigs. It was supposed to be um, in the middle of the central coast of Cuba where there were sandy beaches similar to... Normandy with cliffs to hide out in and stuff like that once they came ashore. But Kennedy changed it to the Bay of Pigs because someone in the CIA uh, did him in. Uh, there's a there's a book called The Fourth Floor that I'm reading that talks about uh, <clears throat> exactly that, that the State Department just undermined the whole, the whole invasion. And the rest is denied manifest destiny as far as I'm concerned since 1959. I will agree with you that was a tragedy, and history would have been very different had the Bay of Pigs invasion succeeded. So we'll do another show on that. And again, I don't propose to have uh, you know the kind of expertise you have. I'm just not up to speed on that period. But with that said, it makes the point that during a presidential transition, right, that you've got people coming in who may, you know, Kennedy had been a senator, but he had not been in the Senate for that long. Like, like Obama, a short period of time. Although we can talk about, uh, you know, uh, that, that's that's an area where you know we, we may agree or disagree over how successful Obama was. I, I'm of the view that, the, and, and I know we're going to have disagreement. No, no, I won't let you go there. It's okay. your it's your show. Go back to your statues and story. So I, I think we will agree on this point, which is that during this period, especially if there's a crisis, you got to have the incoming administration ready to. You know, do what needs to be done. And, and the villains out there, you know, those who want to do harm to the United States, it's an opportunity. And without going into, you know, different countries around the world, and it's, it's funny because there were, it's, I should say it's not funny. Yeah, you actually posted that Truman didn't know about the Manhattan Project. That's right. So let's talk about that. And I'm going to go back to hot spots around the world. So Truman comes in after FDR dies. So that's another transition. So today we're talking about transitions after an election. But the other kind of transition is Kennedy getting assassinated and Johnson coming in, or Truman picking up after FDR dies, right? Because FDR died during his fourth term. So, you know, I'm going to point to the transition that Truman gave over to Eisenhower as an example of a good transition. And I think Truman appreciated the importance of doing things right, because to your point, when Truman came in as vice president, he didn't even know about the Manhattan Project that was kept so far under wraps. Imagine that the vice president didn't even know what we were working on, according to you know the prevailing history, you know the wisdom there. Yeah, in that case, I understand. Anybody can understand that you just can't leak that stuff out. You just never know where it goes. You can't even tell your vice president it was you know the creation of a nuclear weapon. My God. 
was, the vice president? I mean, if you have to tell, I mean, I, I think the vice president should have been in the loop. And, and maybe he was, I just didn't fully understand. But the, the understanding is that Truman was not fully up to speed if he knew at all about the Manhattan Project. And that's what ended the World War II in the Pacific. You know, we beat the Nazis on the land in the, in, you know, the, the regular approach, if you will, through, through military engagements and loss of life. But the Japanese, we defeated the, uh, the, the Russian, uh, not the Russian, but the, you know, the Japanese Empire by, uh, you know, by, by using, uh, we could mention the names of the bombs, but uh, we had to drop two atomic bombs, and that, that saved American lives. And you know, we could debate about that another day. I'm, I'm in favor of what had to be done just to end that war. But that, that's another conversation for another night. But the point is... Yeah, better them than us. <laughs> Plain and simple. They attacked America, and we ended it, and we probably saved lives. And hopefully it never has to be done again. And I, I would support that. Hopefully we never, ever have to use atomic weapons again. But I'm not going to criticize Truman for doing what he did. But, but my larger point is that Truman was not fully up to speed because Roosevelt kept certain things away from him. So when Truman is defeated and when Eisenhower comes in, Eisenhower, um, you know, and we can talk about Eisenhower was a war hero during World War II. He was a supreme allied commander. So you, you could not ask for, you know, a more qualified military leader than an Eisenhower coming in. So what does Truman do? You know, respecting that and understanding that the Cold War has now started, you know, Truman order, uh, he orders his administration uh, to uh, provide secret briefings to Eisenhower and to fully cooperate. So that's the first example of a modern transition was the Truman to Eisenhower. And let me read you what I wrote on the website if I can find it. Well, it seems it seems very obvious then that it it, it, it behooves me to think that Eisenhower would leave the Bay of Pigs invasion to the next president. It just, uh, I don't know, it just seems like he never believed in it or didn't want it to happen or just was so angered or anguished about previous war that he just couldn't endure another one. And it seems more likely that that was the case. You know, it's interesting, Manny, because it's not just the transition, which is a difficult period, but it's the period leading up to an election. So, you know, presidents... They're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. If they take big steps prior to an election, they can be accused. There was a movie, Wagging the Dog, right? Yeah. They can be accused of doing something to affect the election. So it's, it's difficult for the new incoming president to you know, hand off a policy of the old president. The old president doesn't want to do anything during the transition or prior to the election. So it's an opportunity for the, you know, the, the hot spots around the world to get even hotter Although hopefully they realize. Well, that. well, we gotta we gotta mention what Bush did to Clinton. Remember Mogadishu? He left that hot potato. Uh, as soon as Clinton came in, Mogadishu was hot on fire, and that wasn't his fault. That was Bush setting him up, basically. Here, welcome to the White House. He left Mogadishu in flames. I mean, it happened within days of him leaving office. It ain't an easy job, and you want to make it as easy as possible, and that's the purpose of this act. So let me read you what I wrote about with the successful Truman-Eisenhower transition. So here we go. Historians have learned that upon stepping into the presidency, Truman was unaware of the secret Manhattan Project that would end World War II in the Pacific. After the 52 election, Truman invited Eisenhower to the White House and ordered federal agencies to assist the former Supreme Allied commander and war hero. So that's an example of a good transition. So after Eisenhower, that's when Kennedy comes in. And now we're making it a law. We're not relying upon the good faith and the good relationship between the two incoming and outgoing administrations. So that's the whole idea of the Presidential Transition Act, the PTA of 63, is to formalize office space and a procedure and protocols and funding, right? So what else can we talk about? So I've got pictures of the act. 
which has LBJ's signature on it. And let's skip over now to this issue of the certification process. So I, I talked about how the, the main objective of the, of the bill, when you look at the legislative history, was to address the financing and the financial aspects and to have procedures. But you have this issue of, you know, who makes the decision? So let me go through some analysis. So we talked about Section 3, which is the definition of president-elect. And we talked about how the GSA administrator is the one who makes the decision when to turn over the keys, if you will, to the new offices and all of the – and remember, this isn't the White House because the president doesn't have to move out until January 20th, although I have a feeling that President Trump – and we should avoid present discussions ah. – I would not be surprised if President Trump starts spending more time at Mar-a-Lago, but we shall see. So what's the point? The point is that uh, it's the, the head or the administrator of the GSA, which is the government department, the bureau. So right now, the head of the GSA is Emily Murphy. That's her name, Emily Murphy. And she has to ascertain who won the 2020 election using that terminology of who was the apparent winner. So it was reported today, or maybe it was yesterday, I think it was today, that at the moment she is holding off on making that decision on whether or not there is a apparent winner. And, you know, again, she has that key to that 20,000 square feet of office space. And likely she is waiting on the pending litigation that was brought by the Trump campaign. And, and here you get into the election of uh, the Bush-Gore or, yeah, the, the Bush-Gore election, which was the famous Florida hidden, you know, the hidden chads or hanging. Oh, hanging chads, not hidden chads. Right. So don't be a Democrat, OK? So that was a slip of the tongue. Excuse me. So what was the precedent that I think that Murphy will point to? And I think you're going to like this, man. You're going to agree with her if she wants to hold off on doing anything, because there, some would say there's uncertainty. I would say there's less uncertainty. But you know, we can debate about that another time. So I have a feeling that the GSA will point to the Clinton administration's decision to decline providing access to President Bush until the Supreme Court ruling in Bush versus Gore. So what I did on the website is I put a link to the legal opinion, which was written by the Office of Legal Counsel. Which was 36 days after the election. So you might be right on the timing. It would not surprise me. But this legal opinion explains why the, the Clinton administration did not recognize Bush or Gore, because they wanted to wait until that Supreme Court case. So it, it's interesting. That is correct. That should be the right way to go about it. And this one's going to be even more complex. So because... Bush Gore is one state. This is like three or four states. And the only way Bush could, the only way that Trump can win this is to actually take a two or two states from uh, victories of Biden, not just not just win Pennsylvania, but he's got to keep Georgia, keep North Carolina, and then take probably Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Michigan away from him. And that's entirely uh, entirely difficult. So, Manny, I have to tell you, and these are areas where we will disagree, and that's fine. And we won't spend too much time on it. Uh, the counter argument and the position I would take is that although you might say this is more complex, I would say today is a lot simpler. And the reason why the, the lawyers would say the distinguishing or the, the reason for the difference between 2000 versus 2020. You mean more insurmountable. Right. Is back then there was a recount. Bush had won the election and Gore was trying to get a recount. Today, if you flip it around. And according to the certification and the majority of states getting it to 270, President-elect Biden, and that's what I'm going to call him, President-elect Yeah, he doesn't Biden, have to ask for a recount, but at the same time. right? And it's not as if anyone is seeking a recount to set aside that decision. You know, that decision's already been made. So that, that's one of the major differences. 
um, and we, we can we, we can spend well, hours. Well, there is difference. Because there's another difference is that one's an incumbent asking for a recount as of today. I mean, they're in front of the Supreme Court today, and they're gonna they're gonna claim that they have watermarked ballots, and all other ballots are made up ballots. And if that holds true, and that is not just hearsay, that actually is true, that he signed an executive order to watermark. All the ballots, uh, based on Homeland Security procedures about Russian collusion and all that stuff, if that is true, and that's just not on social media, that's a legitimate reason to recount. And if they recount, they can only recount the watermark ballots. And that could turn this whole election upside down if, indeed, the Democratic Party's operatives manufactured and reprinted a bunch of ballots. I mean, hundreds of thousands of ballots that, of course, are alleged so who knows? You know, this could be much more scandalous than we think. And there's one group of people saying that the remember the uh, when we shut down the, the, the embassy, the Chinese embassy in Houston. You remember that back in the day? Tell me. Uh, there was papers burned inside the embassy. And some people are alleging and on, you have no idea if it's true or not. But some people are alleging that they were burning those fake ballots to turn Texas blue. So, Manny, I will avoid. That is major drama. That is a lot of drama. Conspiracy theories, and again, we're talking about the the period of 1963 and the act, and we'll talk about some of the amendments. Uh, but I have not seen any definitive proof. Yeah, either have I. I've only read it. Okay, and I'm also pointing out, and again, we can we can talk about some of this privately because we like to, you know, we're, we're friends and we're we're collegial about it. But uh, I will point out that while you baited me, I just had to let it go. It was like a, it was like a hiccup in my in my throat. I just if there is evidence, the evidence needs to be presented in court, and the cases so far are getting dismissed. But you know, we'll, we shall see. Well, now they're in front of the Supreme Court, so it starts today, and I think it has to end by Dece- December the twelfth, I believe. So let's talk about some of the earlier transitions, and there are three examples of a of, of, a, of a contested election. And we've we've done some of this in other nights. So we, we of course had the election of 1800, which is when some people call it the Revolution of 1800. That's quoting Jefferson, when Jefferson defeats Adams, and that's where you have the Federalists are pushed out of office, and the new Democrat Republicans or the Democratic Republicans, that's Jefferson and Madison, come into power. But that election was a tie. Because back then you voted separately for the president and vice president, so Adams was running, but uh, it was it was it was actually Jefferson's vice president, Aaron Burr, who was tied with Jefferson. So that goes to the House, and the House has to decide. And ultimately, after multiple rounds, and we've discussed this in other nights, Jefferson beats Aaron Burr, and Aaron Burr was Jefferson's vice president, and Jefferson Burr was contesting what he should be president. So that was that was a nasty election, and and as it turns out, Adams did not go to Jefferson's inauguration, and there may have been various reasons for that, that Adams wanted Jefferson to have all the spotlight. So it doesn't mean necessarily that he's being critical of Jefferson, but Adams was not at Jefferson's election or Jefferson's inauguration. And what I point out on the website is that still was a good transition because Jefferson had been the Secretary of Treasury, I'm sorry, the Secretary of State. So Jefferson was very familiar with the government. He had resigned from the Washington administration, but you know he was equipped to fully come in and hit the ground running, if you will, because you know, he was fully aware of, of, I would expect, most if not all of the issues. So he did not need much of a transition. Jefferson was ready to go. Jefferson knew what he was doing. So that was a, a difficult election in 1800. And then you also had Jackson and Quincy Adams that also was a pain, because it was decided by the House as well. 
1824, you had J- Jackson had a majority, but he didn't have a majority. I'm sorry, he had he had more. He had a plurality. Plurality. He didn't have yes. a majority. So the House had to decide that election of 1824, and many had called it. A, in fact, probably Jackson. Who, uh, yeah, Andrew Jackson probably called it a corrupt bargain. I think was the description because it was the House that decided. And his argument was, I got the most, I got the plurality, let me be president. But they gave it to John Quincy Adams, who was on better terms and was less of a threat, if you will, to institutionalize power and to his friends in the House and the Senate. Yeah, and he also promised uh, Stanton, I think it was, a, a, a high position, or maybe I got the wrong name. But I know that Quincy Adams promised somebody who decided uh, the outcome. And I think he came. That person came in third place. I forgot who ran. Who was the third candidate that ran in that election? And back then, you had multiple, co- yeah. you know, candidates from multiple parties. Today, it's basically just a two-party system. Although today, you have the Green Party, you have the Independent Party. But today, it's basically a two-party system. Back then, they hadn't yet figured out the two parties yet, and who knows what the future will hold. So, interestingly, in that election, 1824, Adams becomes president, but he loses to, to Jackson. Four years later, so Adams becomes a one-term president, just like his father. So John Quincy Adams is a one-term president, does not attend the inauguration of, of Jackson, just like John Adams in 1800 does not attend the inauguration of Jefferson. It will be interesting to see what happens in 2020, but that's a, another conversation. So I want to talk now about examples, and I've got a link in it. I think it's a wonderful letter, and I know people will have different opinions on George Bush. This is Bush 41. But there's a wonderful letter that I have to put on the website because, it, in my opinion, gives an example of how, how much of a statesman, how much of a gentleman, how much of a patriot, and uh, just w- what it means to be someone who puts country before anything else. So I don't know if you had a chance to look at it yet, but this is the letter. And it, this started a new tradition in January of 1993 when the first President Bush, so it's George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush 41, leaves a beautiful letter, handwritten letter, and I'm going to read some of it to you because it's, it's such a wonderful letter. And now subsequent presidents have continued in this tradition. So, <laughs> Can you imagine Trump's to Biden's? <laughs> oh, my God. All right, go ahead. All right, so I, I, because it, 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 it makes me proud as an American when I read this letter, and I've seen it you know, promoted on, uh, on, on, on social media because it has such a positive message. So January 20th, 1993, that's the day that the outgoing president leaves the White House. So this is what was waiting I don't know where it was put, if it was on the bed or on, probably on the... On the no, it's probably in the desk. Yeah, in the probably on the desk. So this is the... De- I agree with you. So it's, it's the... Anyone can go to the website. You can see it. It's the White House stationery with the presidential seal, January 20th, 1993, Dear Bill. When I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. And remember, this is a president who just lost, right? Right. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here... I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times, made even more difficult by, and sometimes, you know, it's his handwriting, more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I am not a very good one to give advice, so he's humble. I'm not very one, I'm not one very good one to give advice, semicolon, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. And here's my favorite paragraph. You will be our president. Where when you read this note, I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I am rooting for you. Good luck, George. So just think about that for a second. You have an outgoing president who just lost an election, 
wishing good luck to the new incoming president because you are, and he underlines, our president. So, you know, it almost brings tears to my eyes. And that tradition started by George Herbert Walker Bush has now continued. So I'm not going to read from the other presidential letters, but, you know, following in that tradition. So after, after George Herbert Walker Bush, you had Clinton. Clinton left a note for, you know, who, who replaced Clinton. It's George Herbert Walker's son, George W. Bush. Right? Yeah, okay, incredible series of, of letters. And then George W. Bush leaves a letter for President Obama. So I do want to read because you've got the father and the son. So let me read real quickly just a sentence from G.W. Bush's letter to, to Obama. So this is what, let me find it on the website. And I have a link so people can read all the letters. And in those cases, there were, there were landslides. So it was uh, probably very easy for W. to write this letter. Since he was he sabotaged Clinton anyway. <laughs> so George W. had won two elections. It's, you're right. It's easier for him to leave a you know a, I won't call it patriotic, but to leave a, a humble and a, you know a sincere letter because he wasn't defeated. Right? It was his vice president who was running against. Let me think for a second. It, sorry, it wasn't his vice president. It was, it was McCain. Um, McCain lost to Obama. It was, you're right. It was McCain. Thank you. All right, so here is what um, this is what George W. Bush writes. George W. wrote to Obama that the country, quote, is pulling for you, including me. And you know, I think you have developed over time relationships between these presidents, because it is an elite club. I would argue it's the most elite club in the world. And we now have a woman who is in, you know, the vice president in that club, which is telling you something. But uh, what's the point? The point is that, you know, this, it's, it's beauty. If people look at some of these letters, it, 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 uh, it inspires me. And Obama writes to Trump. I'll just read you one sentence. No, you got to do more than one sentence. Okay, so Michelle and I wish you and Melania the very best as you embark on this great adventure and know that we stand ready to help you in any ways which we can. And then I've got the link. So that tradition started with, as we said, Bush 41, and every president since has left a handwritten note for their successor. Um, so... Let's talk about some of the other transitions. So we talked about John Quincy Adams didn't go to the inauguration of Jackson. And then one of the most problematic transitions was Buchanan to, to Lincoln. So Buchanan, uh, you know, what winds up happening after Lincoln gets, gets elected? And the answer is, and I, I give the number, seven states secede during that transition. And back then it was November to March. So seven states secede, and you had eight states that were debating succession, but some of the border states did not succeed. So you know, Lincoln is faced with a true constitutional crisis, like a crisis that dealt with the future of America as a united country. And that, there's no question that that's, what the re that's the reason why the South seceded, because they did not want Lincoln, and uh, they thought Lincoln uh, was too pro-abolitionism, you know, pro and we can debate about what that means. Uh, but they did not like the fact that Lincoln uh, was, was viewed in the South as being a too anti-slavery. And he was anti-slavery in the territories, no question about it. But long story short, you know, Lincoln is faced with a, a country that's coming apart at the seams. Uh, so unlike Lincoln, Buchanan, who was the predecessor to Lincoln, believed that the Constitution did not empower him to do anything. And Lincoln, of course, believed that, yes, he does have the authority under the Constitution to uphold the law. And according to Lincoln, and I agree, the Constitution doesn't allow states to get out. And the, and the, you know, the Civil War resolved that question. 
So some of the southern states obviously thought that they could. It was, a, in their mind, it was a compact. It was an alliance, if you will, between states, an agreement, and they could, they could you know, terminate the contract. But that's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution has to be amended. You can't just unilaterally secede from the country. So we had to fight the Civil War, and the South obviously lost, and thankfully. Uh, but the point is that that was a transition where Lincoln was powerless, and there's a great speech that he gives, and we talked about it, his inaugural address where he's basically appealing to the border states not to secede, and he succeeded in preventing the border states from, you know, they wanted to keep their powder dry and see what, what's going to happen. But, you know, that was, I, I think, the most difficult transition was the Lincoln to Buchanan. And, you know, Buchanan didn't think he could do anything, and Lincoln disagreed with him. So what else? We've got... Which I, and, and Buchanan's uh, behavior in the presidency might have averted the Civil War, but his lack of... Uh, taking it seriously at states leaving and prompting Lincoln to face the obvious. There's going to be an internal war within states. And Buchanan was uh, pro-slavery. He was a Southerner. Yeah. So we're going to skip now to 1980. So 1980 is another transition, which was a good transition. It's just that the two did not necessarily uh, appreciate each other's company because they were so very different. So President-elect Ronald Reagan, and I know he's one of your heroes, and I agree he's not a bad president. So President-elect Ronald Reagan, according to the biographer of, of, uh, of Carter, made it clear, this is Reagan, made it clear he wanted nothing to do with Carter, and Carter's biographer during, describes their limousine ride, because that's something that's happened in modern times. The two presidents will ride together uh, to the inauguration at the Capitol. From the, from the White House, they ride together to the Capitol. Uh, we can talk about what happens with Washington, with uh, Hoover and Roosevelt riding together to the Capitol. But according to Carter's biographer, you know, Reagan tells a series of anecdotes to Carter that Carter thought were remarkably pointless. <laughs> Dummy. He's, he's telling stories about when he met, uh, and I, I don't put it on the website, but he's talking about well, what are some of the big Hollywood celebrities or Hollywood studios? Warner. There it is, Warner. So Time Warner. So he's talking about the time Reagan, when he met uh, you know, the president of Warner Studios, Time oh, Warner. Oh, yeah, totally small talk. Uh, right. Reagan's making small talk, and, and you know, Carter could care less about you know, Reagan. Meeting, yeah, you know, yeah exactly. peanut farmer. What could he care about Hollywood? <laughs> so he, he refers to the small talk as, as remarkably pointless. So they were civil with each other, it's just they're very different. So at the time, Carter, according to the biographer, was deeply in thought about the release of Iranian hostages, and there were things going on behind the scenes. So, uh, long story short, it's funny. It was they were released the day of the inauguration. I know it was close. I'm not sure of the day, but there were things. Things were happening, and and you could argue that Iran uh, knew that not to mess with Reagan. Yeah. So there were subsequent amendments. So let's talk about how the law has changed. And I'll point out to you that you know just as it uses uh, him, you know he, the president's referred to in the masculine tense. And, you know, airmail is referred to in the original 63 bill. It's been amended multiple times, particularly after 9-11. And that's a perfect example of how it's a dangerous period if you're not equipped to you know, respond to international crises. So there have been subsequent amendments to the original act. So the amount of money obviously has increased from the original 900000 to basically $10 million today. But there were amendments, and I'll give you some of the names. The Presidential Transitions Effectiveness Act in 1998 then you had the pre-election Presidential Act of 2010, and there were some others. Uh, one of them is named the Ed Ted Kaufman, and we could talk about who Ted Kaufman is, but he's one of Biden's primary advisors, and he used to be in the Senate. So he had a role in one of these acts. That was the 2015 Act. Well, so he's that old. Well, 2015. And then there was an amendment in 2019. 
So what, what do these various amendments do? And some of them put in place more detailed procedures and protocols, including ethics and training and orientation sessions. And then after 9-11, the, the PTA, which we, of course we're referring to as the Presidential Transition Act, was amended to allow transition team members to obtain security clearances because you want your team to be able to get access to the confidential you know, security uh, briefings, so that requires clearance. So a lot of this can happen now under the, the new laws. Uh, which have been amended over time since 9-11. An amendment in 2004, for example, directed outgoing officials to prepare classified national security threat assessments, not just for the president, but for the incoming people in the administration who may not have been confirmed yet. And that's a whole separate conversation. You need to get your team confirmed, and uh, sometimes that can be difficult. So the Obama administration passed two bills. So these are the two most recent ones. Uh, I'm sorry, not the two most, but some of the more recent ones which addressed shortcomings that it thought that it experienced in 2008. So in 2010, the pre-election Presidential Transition Act, not to bore people with details, accelerated the timeline for funding so money can start flowing after the party conventions, although the lion's share of the money doesn't start until after the election. And then new duties in 2015 were added for the outgoing administration. An incumbent president, for example, is required to establish what are referred to as coordinating councils and to do an MOU governing the transition process and transition privileges, because it's a little bit of a negotiation, what they're going to share. And in 2020, there was yet another amendment. The PTA was updated to require ethics plan planning and addressing conflicts of interests if you're going to have lobbyists involved with your transition. And now I want to talk about, and it's funny, and I don't know if you saw it yet on the website, but there is what's referred to as, I'll give you the full name and then I'll give you the short name. So there is a document that's created, because there are about 4,000 political positions which are political appointees, not civil service, that a new president gets to appoint about 4,000-plus jobs. And these political appointees you know, are in charge of the 2 million federal employees, and then you've got the post office on top of that. So you've got approximately 1,200 of these require Senate confirmation. If you're a cabinet official, if you're a department secretary, or other important positions. So 1,200 Senate-confirmed positions, that's a lot that has to be done. So... There is a document, a publication, that's called the United States Government Policy and Supporting Positions. And it's a thick publication of all of these jobs where you have to make appointments. So it's an unfair question, but if anybody is listening, uh, here I'm throwing out the question, what's the, the name, the commonly referred name of this book that the new administration gets because they have to make these political appointments? So you want to mention the name, and it's, it's, it's really coming from a piece of fruit, because these are good jobs. They are, it's a purple fruit. Did you find it, Manny? So it's the plum book. So the plum book is prepared for the new administration. It contains the data on thousands of federal civil service and other leadership positions for the new incoming administration. And these are executive positions, immediate subordinates, and it's policy heads, aides who report to these officials so uh, I've got a copy if you want to click on the plum book so people can read it, and you can see what these openings are depending upon who becomes, uh, you know, takes office on January 20th. And in my mind, it's pretty clear who takes office, but we shall see. So what other links do I have on the website? So I've got links, as I mentioned, to the hearings that were held in 1963. I've got links to the original bill if you want to look at the original bill. And, and here I'm making, uh, I'm joking, I'm making light of the fact that the, the newer amendments can be pages long. You know, one of them is eight pages, whereas the original bill is four pages. So it just tells you how over time things get more complicated, that an amendment today is twice the size of the original entire bill from 1963. 
So I've got some books that I put in there. I've got an executive order in there so people can read if they really want to get into the weeds. And um, what else do we want to talk about? So we talked about various elections, some of which were contested. And we talked about, again, this is the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. And you're going to be reading about this in the papers because this is the big issue. When and under what circumstances will the president-elect Biden and his team be given access to the Commerce Department where the offices are set up? Let me look at the time. And you know what? We've got a little bit of time, so I want to give everyone the heads up about this coming Sunday. So not talking about present politics, we have the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Book Club. So it's the Alexander Hamilton and that's uh, the virtual book club. And listeners of our radio show know that every month for the last several months, we've had a different author who's, who's come on. And um, I'm going to put a link to it on the website, Statutes and Stories. But this coming Sunday at 7 o'clock, we have author Michael Newton. And he wrote what I want to describe as, as the most thorough set of, of research that's been done on early Hamilton. So Hamilton growing up and Hamilton's early years. And I don't have the book in front of me, but that's basically the name of the book, Hamilton's Early Years. And it talks about the, the uh, recently discovered, and I'm going to go pick it up because I see where I have it, the recently discovered in the last couple of years archival research going into the Caribbean and going into um, you know, Western Europe into where some of these Dutch records were held, moved from the Caribbean back into Holland. Uh, you know, which give there's all kinds of debates about how old was Hamilton and you know what was he doing prior to moving to America. So let me get the book. You went silent on me. You just disappeared in the middle of live radio. Okay, so I have the book in front of me. It's Alexander Hamilton: The Formative Years. I said the early years. It's The Formative Years by Michael Newton. And this is a big, bad book. I mean, it's a great book. It's 764 pages, and I still haven't finished it yet. But this is what we'll be discussing on Sunday at 7 o'clock, the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Book Club or the Alexander Hamilton Virtual Book Club. And I think I've mentioned that we have several affiliate organizations that we work with. So there's the Daughters of the American Revolution, the DAR. So they participate. We may get questions from descendants of the Revolutionary War soldiers. That's the DAR. We also have Nova Southeastern University's Lifelong Learning Institute. These are retired teachers and doctors and judges and, and others who, who belong to that group, which is a group of seniors. So if you wanted to participate, what would they do? So anybody can listen. It's totally free. You just have to register. And if you go to statutesandstories.com, I'll put up a link. You have to send an email because we don't want people Zoom bombing. So as long as you send an email and then we send you a password. So anybody, it's totally free. So the groups that are under our umbrella is the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society. It's uh, Statutes and Stories. It's, as I said, the DAR, the Biscayne Chapter, and also NSU's Lifelong Learning Institute. So we have people. So, you know, it's sort of based Statutes and Stories and NSU, are ba and the Daughters of the American Revolution chapter is based out of South Florida, but the AHA Society is based out of New York, and they've got locations, and they're in charge of the, the Hamilton Grange in New York City, and they do, they do programming all around the country. So we have people who, in fact, last, last month, uh, we had one of the Hamilton descendants called in. Uh, we have people in the Caribbean who are in Nevis. We have people, as I said, all across the country in this and, and I, I joke about it. Well, from Nevis, where he was born, my God. He was born, because they have a chapter in Nevis. So we've got people all around, really all around the world, who call into this book club. And that, that's why you know, it's, it's so fascinating to me. Normally, a book club is you sit in the, in the living room of somebody's house, and a bunch of friends talk about a book. 
right, or a group of, you know, expanding group of friends who share an interest in whatever the subject is of the books, if it's a literary book club or science fiction book club or a history book club, but this is an Alexander Hamilton book club, and I broadly define Hamilton. Uh, we can talk about some of the future books. But the point is that here we're doing this on a national or international scale where, you know, it, it's not just in your living room. You're getting to talk with people from different perspectives who have the shared love of, of American history. We also have homeschoolers and uh, I like to say students of all ages. So I will put a link on Statutes and Stories if you want information. And I should probably read to you the way to send the email. But let me do that now. So if anyone wants to join, you have to send an email let me find it, to register, here it is, send an email to, nope, that's not it, but I think it's register at alexanderhamiltonbookclub.com. That's, that's where you send an email, and I'll post it so people can, can find it, and that's, that's how you'll get the password will be emailed to you prior to Sunday so people can join the, the Zoom book club meeting totally free, and uh, it, will, it will not disappoint because Newman is a phenomenal lecturer and that the research he's done, as I said, in the trenches of looking into these old archival records and getting them translated and explaining, you know, that, that's true historic research. And I'm now looking for... Uh, so register at HamiltonBookClub.com. I'm going online. I can find it online. Give me a second. So it's the, the website is AlexanderHamiltonBookClub.com. And there it is, alexanderhamiltonbookclub.com. And the way you register is you send an email. Yep, register at, and that is the A in the circle, register at alexander, no space, hamiltonbookclub.com. That's how you go. You send an email to register at alexanderhamiltonbookclub.com. So the, the first book we did was, and I've talked about it before, was um, Brookheiser's book, which was a short biography of Hamilton. And then we did Professor we did Professor Knott from the Naval War College, his book about Alexander Hamilton and the Persistence of Myth. And this coming week is going to be, and I mentioned the book already, but this is Michael Newton's book, which is Alexander Hamilton, The Formative Years. That's the third in our series. And then in December... And it's a shame he never had a transition because he was never president. So that's, right. Ham Hamilton never had a transition, but he was part of Washington's transition. Let's do it that way. So we ended on that note. WSQF 94.5. Say goodbye, Adam. Tell him you're going to transition to a Republican one day. <laughs> Take so care. To be continued, but everyone have a great night. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.